What a massive database of retracted papers reveals. Massive database. <laughs> there we go. You've got the ticket, Don. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. I thought I dropped, I dropped, I dropped. Today, Mutant Ninja Turtle Michelangelo will be there. <laughs> Again, you realize that's now going to be the intro. Good. So welcome to December, everyone, and welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am when I am trying to program a universal remote control. I have tried three of them, and I cannot get them to work. What is wrong with me? Mm. It's impossible. I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I'm here with Chris Gill and Don Thea. Hello. Hi. And they are from the Department of Global Health here at the BU School of Public Health. And as always, we are here in the Boston University Godly Studio. Mm-hmm. So, guys, it's uh, it's flu and cold season. Have you guys gotten your flu shots? I, I have. have. Good. Wow. Well done. I have, I have as well. Uh, but, you know, even with your flu shot, we all do tend to get, uh, we often get colds this time of year. And I have the... The cure for the common cold. Oh, God. You know, before you get into that, I found this amazing website <laughs> oh, that that's it's like it, it's all it's all about I think about different kinds of soda and how they're good for you. It's no. called the Pop Health Exchange. You're wrong. <laughs> you, Probably if you're from the Midwest, right? We we have the cure for the common cold. It's the Population Health Exchange website. It's good for the winter blues too, man. It will not make you less sick, but it will it will cheer up your soul. You'll really enjoy it. It's you fizzy. Will, it's fruity. Stop it. You can learn there uh, about Boston University School of Public Health. Well, it is Boston University School of Public Health lifelong learning hub. You can find their tool How programs you're still and reading classes. That, you huh? should have memorized that by now. You say this at every single podcast and you're still reading it. I, 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 I have no explanation for that. I am apparently not a lifelong learner. <laughs> that's all i can say you but should go to the population health exchange website I should. <laughs> go to pophealthex.org where you'll find this podcast as well as many other population health learning programs and tools and also if we could ask you once again we, we just love it when you go on itunes or your your podcast app and you give us a, a rating so that other people can find us yeah All right, so now on to the show. So today, in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study about a possible relationship between herpes simplex virus and dementia. Uh, In the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive segment, we will talk about a paper that explored a massive database of retracted papers and what it is that they learned from looking into those that database. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into some things that have made us laugh out loud or just helped us get our through our day. Or Chris will tell us about bees, be they flying around or vitamins in our bodies. Briefly. Very briefly. So let's get into segment one. So segment one, we're talking about an article that looked at the effect of Herpes simplex, as well as antiherpetic medications and risk of dementia, was published in the journal Neurotherapeutics, and it was by first author uh, Nian Cheng Sen of the Department of Psychiatry in the School of Medicine at the National Defense Medical Center in Taipei, Taiwan. And it was entitled Antiherpetic Medications and Reduced Risk of Dementia in Patients with Herpes Simplex Virus Infections, a nationwide population-based cohort study in Taiwan. Uh, let me give you some headlines on this one. So the Atlantic 
says, even more evidence for the link between Alzheimer's and herpes. Scientific American says harder evidence builds that viruses play a role in Alzheimer's. Uh, the Scientist magazine says herpes virus implicated in Alzheimer's disease. Net Yahoo News says there's mounting evidence that Alzheimer's is caused by the herpes virus responsible for cold sores. And Stat News says how an outsider bucked prevailing Alzheimer's theory clawed for validation. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? No idea, but that's why Clawed? C-L-A-W? Clawed for validation. Hmm. Yeah, that's why I plucked it, because I thought it was uh, bizarre. Clawed, like, yeah. like clawed by a cat? Yeah. And, and I, I should say, the reason why I have, I, I find these through looking at the altmetric citations, mm. so it's possible the altmetric is, is just picking clawed. up something that is unrelated uh, somehow. But anyway, um, so that's what I got in terms of the headlines. Don, can you explain to us what they did in this study? Sure, Matt. So this study was done in Taiwan, which is another country that has these massive national databases. And they've got something called the National Health Insurance Program, which, which was launched in the 90s. And it has data on essentially 97% of the medical providers with approximately 23 million beneficiaries, which comprise more than 99% of the population of Taiwan. Mm. And so this data set exists, and um, these guys did a retrospective analysis, a little bit similar to one of the more recent studies that, that we had talked about that the, was done in Denmark, Denmark. right? Yeah, yeah, the Denmark study. Um, and what they did was they looked through this massive database, and they identified 8,350-year-old um, or older subjects who had a new-onset diagnosis of herpes simplex, which mm -hmm. is... Cold sores on the mouth or genital herpes. Um, and that was people who had that first episode reported in the database for a one-year period of time between January and December of the year 2000. They uh, included only people who uh, made three outpatient visits to a physician or an outpatient department in a hospital with symptomatic HSV within that one-year study period. So they had to have had at least three episodes of three separate lesions that they sought medical care for. And the, first, the date of the initial diagnosis of herpes was what they called the index date. They then enrolled three times that. Um, number of controls, or about 25,000 individuals who had no HSV, no, no history of herpes simplex. And they were then matched, frequency matched by age, exact age, sex, and the index year that the cases had. Um, and if they had, if the controls had prior diagnosis of dementia or herpes simplex, they were then excluded from the control um, data set. And the outcome was dementia. Now, when we say dementia, they kind of lump three major kinds of, of dementia together. So um, one was dementia um, due to Alzheimer's disease. One was due to um, a vascular events. So you can get a lot of sort of small strokes and become lacunar infarcts or small strokes, and you can then get dementia from that. And then there was another category, which was sort of dementia for reasons that weren't completely clear. They, they underscore the fact that in each and every case of a diagnosis of, de of dementia that they found in the data set, that diagnosis was made by a board-certified psychiatrist or neurologist, and that each and every episode of the HSV or the herpes simplex um, infection was diagnosed by a dermatologist. And they also collected data on whether these individuals who had herpes were taking medicine. 
and they counted the note. They counted the cumulative um, number of pills, in essence, that these people took for their herpes simplex uh, antivi- antivirals that they took for these these simplexes uh, for the, for this for this disease, and and whether they took it for a short period of time or a long period of time. And then they included that in the analysis, which I'll get to in a second. Um, they looked at a bunch of covariates, including sex, age group, geographic area of residence, urbanization level, regional and local hospitals, monthly income, and they threw those all into essentially a survival analysis, and they um, did a Cox proportional hazard model. So as far as treatment was concerned, there were approximately 7,000 of the people who had had an episode of herpes who had taken medication, and um, approximately 1,100 who had not taken the medicine. So about 13% of the, of the group of patients who had herpes did not take medicine at any point. Um, about 5.8% developed dementia um, in the longitudinal follow-up uh, within 10 years. And in the, in the subgroup, without taking medicines, apparently 28% developed dementia in the same follow-up period. There was also an effect that they found um, in terms of the duration of the um, of the of the medicine, so that there was more of an effect if people, in terms of the outcome, in terms of developing dementia, if they took the um, the antivirals for greater than thirty days in comparison to those who took it for less than thirty days. And um, they've got some survival curves, and they've got some tables, and in essence, from reading through the tables, which was uh, which. Um, compiled the risk of all dementias, as well as the risk of Alzheimer's dementia or vascular dementia or um, other dementia, they found that there was a fairly pronounced increased risk in the development of dementia at 10 years um, if you had um, herpes virus infection. So the the subjects with herpes in comparison to the subjects that didn't have herpes. And it was about a two and a half fold greater Difference. Now, if you were amongst the uh, individuals who took herpes, if you were taking medicine, they calculated that you had about a 90% decrease in the likelihood that you would develop Alzheimer's if you were taking those medicines. And that, that difference was greater if you took those medicines for a longer time. So that's kind of the bottom line mm-hmm. in terms of what they found. But one of the things that I found that was also interesting in these tables is that they, they looked at the likelihood that you would develop dementia based on the presence of a herpes infection, as well as some of these other covariates. And they looked at things like diabetes and hypertension and coronary artery disease. And they found that all of those comorbidities, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, cancer, all seem to protect against the development of dementia, which I found kind of odd. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a fair amount of, of, of scientific evidence out there that seems to suggest in a lot of different ways that there is a relationship between herpes and a number of other infections, cytomegalovirus and um, chlamydia and some other things. Spirochetal so diseases. Spirochetal diseases. Mm-hmm. So there, there may actually be something there. But so, so I, you know, I, I tend to believe this possibly could be true from a biologic standpoint. I'm not sure that I believe the magnitude of the effect. Mm. And the thing that gives me pause about this is, is the reverse effect, especially with... Or with, treated. For, no, for these covariates. Oh, oh, sorry, for the for covariates. So if you, have, if you have coronary artery disease, you would think that those people would have a higher tendency to have vascular dementia because the same thing that's affecting your coronary arteries are is also it's a systemic disease it's also affecting the the arteries in your in yeah. your brain so yeah. 
the, the fact that they found an opposite effect um, really puzzled me. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a really fascinating one. I mean, the, the idea that viruses are now being implicated in more and more chronic conditions. You know, we know, obviously, we know about uh, HPV and cervical cancer being the one that, that is, you know, sort of a... Or helicobacter and gastric cancer. Yeah, sort of. So, so it's really interesting to, to start thinking about the relationship between these viruses and, and other chronic diseases. Um, and yet, you know, it's not clear to me exactly what the, what the mechanism is here. So Chris, what's your, what's your take on this? Well, I think I felt much as, as Don did. When I first uh, saw this paper come up on our, our to-do lists, um, you know, my initial reaction was like, I don't believe this at all. Uh, but then I started reading about it. I think and, you had a different word for it. Um, <laughs> I, I might've had a different word for it that we can't, because we're rated G, we can't yeah, say, no. but, um, I didn't buy it. And, and then I started looking into it and, and, you know, there was, like you said, there's a lot of, there's an extensive literature on this association, but none of it is really, um, you know, I think firmly established a causal relationship. So, um, I, I, I still have to say that I'm, I'm, my, my skepticism is, is high. And there's a bunch of reasons why my skepticism about the Alzheimer's and herpes simplex virus link uh, is why I'm very skeptical about that. But I don't really want to get into that here because I think I want to focus more on, on, on the paper. Um, so my, my first concern uh, has to do with the difficulty of studying Alzheimer's disease. And, and so this goes back now several decades where if you remember that until very recently, we did not have a, a, a in vivo uh, diagnostic test for Alzheimer's disease. So, in, you know, now we can use this special PET scan, which is very specific for Alzheimer's disease. And you can diagnose it in patients who are alive. But in the past, the only way you could diagnose is, was presumptively through clinical you know, symptoms, except that the, the, the symptoms of Alzheimer's dementia are really almost entirely the same as vascular dimension. So that doesn't really help you. Um, so the only way you could prove it was postmortem by doing biopsies of the brain and finding these beta amyloid plaques outside of cells or these tau fibrillary tangles inside of cells. And then we would say that's Alzheimer's disease. So that has always been a problem with, with Alzheimer's research is that you, you never really know whether you're studying it or whether you're studying something else. And so vascular dementia um, is also a problem here because vascular dementia is common as you get old. And not surprisingly, patients with Alzheimer's disease often have vascular dementia. And so this has led to a lot of research showing that there is an apparent association between cardiovascular risks and Alzheimer's disease, um, where you might really wonder, is that all due to misclassification? Because they're not actually studying Alzheimer's disease. They're studying patients with Alzheimer's disease who also have vascular dementia. You know, it makes it very tricky. The whole thing becomes very, very murky. It, it does. But remember, I, you know, I, I, and I, I would agree with you, but... To, to, I, I get I get a little nervous when people uh, immediately go to misclassification I as an explanation. I hear you. Not because it isn't right, but because what we know about misclassification is unless you can spin me a story as to why the rates of misclassification of dementia should be different among those with uh, herpes virus and those without, it's hard for me to see why that would do anything but attenuate effects, make them smaller, so that in fact the effects are actually bigger than what we observe, which are already big effects. Okay, so I, I, I take your point. And let, me, let me sort of follow through on my, my uh, attempted logical argument here. Um, 
because of the, the risk of misclassification of vascular dementia and Alzheimer's dementia, and the, the near impossibility of, of disentangling these through much of the history of Alzheimer's research, we, we, we have come up with these associations that Alzheimer's is, is, is you know, maybe an inflammatory disease, maybe it's a vascular disease, it's associated with vascular risk factors, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, those observations have led to interventions targeting those conditions. And so, for example, there have been randomized controlled trials to see if aspirin or non-steroidals or steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs will reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. And they have all failed in randomized controlled trials. So this, this like makes me immediately think, well, we're probably now misclassifying things here and that the causal relationships are, 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 are not established yet. Um, Similarly, when there have been interventions um, sort of um, targeting the, uh, you know, the pathogenesis of vascular disease as a way of controlling Alzheimer's disease, i.e. through the use of statins or beta blockers or things that would treat heart disease, those randomized control trials have also failed mm. to improve Alzheimer's disease. So, it, you know, when, when Alzheimer's disease is diagnosed quite, quite specifically using a PET scan. And so I you know, starting with that, like, recognition that the, the, the disease is very hard to study, particularly when you're talking about clinical diagnosis rendered through ICD-10 codes, where mm-hmm. probably they're not doing PET scans, let's be honest, um, no. to, to make this diagnosis. They're sure. going to see a neurologist or a psychiatrist, and the guy says, yes, I think this is Alzheimer's disease, but they, they don't know, actually, what's going on in that patient's head. They don't, they literally don't know. Um, so, Given that there are these these sort of overlapping syndromes, I find it interesting that when you look at, in this paper, that the association between herpes simplex infection and the risk of developing Alzheimer's, like, quote, Alzheimer's disease dementia versus vascular dementia versus other form of dementia, because that, that was the third category, you know, Alzheimer's vascular or other, that the relative risks were almost the same mm-hmm. in all three cases, despite mm-hmm. the fact that the pathophysiology of these three conditions is totally distinct, yep. distinct from each other. So why would that, why would herpes simplex have the same relationships with three totally different diseases? It doesn't make any sense to me, unless we are actually looking at mass misclassification and they really are all the same diseases. Or, no, no. So I, I would go the opposite direction. I would say, and, and I, I agree with what you're saying, which is that you know when you're looking at a, a a paper like this and you're looking at the analytics, you want to see does the story internally make sense? You know, you could sort of, it's not quite, but you could sort of think of this as almost like a negative control that that we would expect this might have an effect on one but not the other, or at least the effect should be different. And you're seeing the same thing. That makes me think not of misclassification. Uh, it makes me think of confounding that there is some consistent pattern of confounding that isn't being controlled because otherwise you would expect that that some of these effects would be null for some of the other conditions because it's, the the effects shouldn't be the the same and you're observing the same. So I, I, to me, that's more indicative of a confounding problem Could than a, a misclassification problem. I think the other thing is that we, like like you said, Chris, we we, we really don't know what causes these diseases. Whether really whether it's 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 vascular or whether it's Alzheimer's disease, and there there could be commonalities. There could be um, predispositions. Like one of the things that the little bit of reading that I did on this that 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 came up was that there are certain genetic factors that predispose you to getting Alzheimer's disease, and it's entirely possible that a portion of that same pathophysiology is is um, comes into play if you are of that particular genetic um, background. Mm-hmm. So so. Our ignorance is great about mm-hmm. the pathophysiology of sure. dementia and and yeah. how to how to rack and stack it and, and subcategorize it. So if I could follow on to that though, Don, because I, I think you you raise an interesting point that they're arguing that you know not that herpes simplex 
by itself causes dementia, but that it, it causes dementia in the context of people with specific genetic predispositions to respond to herpes simplex in a, in a, in a, in a way that leads to dementia, right? I don't think they're saying that, but that is a, that that is a pot- potential hi- hypothesis. Hypothesis that is, is prevalent in the literature. Right. Um, and, and, you know, part of the, the reason they say that is because, you know, we were talking about this earlier today, that in, in post-mortem analyses of patients with, with Alzheimer's disease dementia versus non-Alzheimer's disease dementia or non-dementia, they all have very similar rates of herpes simplex infections in their brain. And so it doesn't seem to me that there's a particular, you know, density of HSV infections in patients with Alzheimer's disease versus a, an HSV deposition phenomenon that's related to getting old, okay, which is, of course, a, a confounder mm-hmm. for dementia. But the well, thing wait, that, how is it a confounder? Well, because as we get older, we're all, we're all eventually going to get demented. But how is age, age associated with HSV? Ah, because the more you live on the planet, the more people you kiss. The more people you kiss, the more likely you're going to get HSV. And by the time you're in your 80s, what was that? 90%. 90% of people are infected uh, with HSV. Okay, but, so, but, but so this is a population 50 or older. So does it go up from age 50? Uh, I don't I think know. It depends I, on what they're up to. <laughs> you know, you had said <laughs> that there was a, a new incidence of herpes simplex. And I thought for a second you said there was a new incidence of herpes simplex, which I think is almost certainly true. Anyway, we're going off topic here. <laughs> the the epidemiology of of Alzheimer's disease it's and like herpes simplex, right? right? They, they don't they don't overlap because the peak period of incidence for herpes simplex infection is the peak period of sexual activity, which is in people's late teens, twenties, and thirties. So that is when most HSV transmissions are occurring, and yet the dementias are occurring decades later. So that also strikes me as weird. Like, why would you not see more of a proximate effect between the stimulus and the outcome? So for all of these reasons, know. I'm skeptical maybe, about maybe this. Maybe it just takes time for these things to occur. I, I don't know so. the answer to that. Maybe I so. don't, because I don't truly understand the mechanism. And we've so seen this I... story before, because like the, we, we went through this whole thing with, with uh, chlamydia infections and coronary artery disease. And that led to randomized controlled trials of... You know, You're saying observational studies pointed to chlamydia as a cause of right. Leading coronary artery disease. Right. Leading to randomized controlled trials of azithromycin to see if they could ward off coronary artery disease. It totally bombed. Yeah. So, you know, this, this has that same flavor to me of like a lot of interesting circumstantial evidence, but do I believe it's causal? I kind of, I kind of doubt it. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in, in reviewing the circumstantial evidence, I was really, really impressed with ha- the quantity of and, 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 and um, heterogeneity of the circumstantial evidence. The only thing I wanted to add was that it, it's interesting, and I didn't know this before, but that genetic factor that they've, that they've shown is associated with the development of Alzheimer's disease is a, a particular allele of apolipoprotein E. And that is a particular gene that actually codes for lipoproteins. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there we have perhaps a fundamental mechanism that ties the vascular form of, of um, Alzheimer's disease or of dementia with um, Alzheimer's disease. So, I mean, there, I think our understanding really is in the process of, I mean, we need to, you know, we need to improve our understanding so we have a better idea of what's going on. So I, I, I came into this skeptical. I, I didn't have any particular reason to, to believe there was a mechanism. Don, you enlightened me as to some potential mechanisms. But I, I still have to admit I went into this kind of skeptical. The effect sizes seem way too way, large yeah, way to, too be, large. Huge, to be huge. believable. And so, you 90, know, I, a 91% I, reduction in Alzheimer's incidence yeah, for... Just, 
extended use of a cycle beer? It does 10 years. Yeah. I don't buy it. Yeah, doesn't, I don't doesn't, buy it either. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, so I started thinking, what are, what are the other potential explanations? So I started, you know, the, uh, Chris, you, I went to the misclassification. I don't... I don't have a reason to believe the misclassification would, would be different across groups, but I, I do believe that the confounding potentially is a problem. It looked like there was some measured confounding that they were able to control for, but things that they didn't measure for, they didn't give us a lot here to go on. So I started wondering a couple of things. Um, could, uh, is it, so is it theoretically possible that you are diagnosing dementia because you're getting treatment for your uh, for your herpes, I mean, it's good. they had to, they had to be getting treatment for herpes to be in the in the herpes group, right? So you're not just you don't just have it; you're in medical care at least you had at least three visits, I think. Yeah, and, and and I had I had an issue with that because you know typically somebody gets gets a cold sore and they go to the doctor and they get given an, uh, a medicine and the, the cold sore goes away because it typically lasts you know seven to ten days, and then they completely heal and then sometime later you get it and typically people don't go back to the doctor they don't go to an outpatient clinic because of the second and third time that they had it so I don't I don't understand this particular population of people because sure. it sounds not typical of the average yep. herpes simplex infection. No, I agree. But do you, but do you think that that no, being in care no. wouldn't wouldn't make you more likely to get your dementia diagnosed? I don't think so. Than somebody who was just you, you in contact just, with the healthcare system just less? more being seen by a medical practitioner yeah. well, more frequently. Well, well there is yeah. there is one way I can imagine that might be, and that this is some sort of um, selection bias in a way that you've got. Uh, you're going to tell me it's not selection bias that yeah, is confounding. Be. So <laughs> I'm, I'm always wrong. I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it bunfounding. All right, bun <laughs> by by finding. Anyway, um, so you know, as we get old and we get demented, we become unhealthy, and we our immune systems get um, progressively weaker, and we are more likely to activate herpes simplex, uh, latent herpes simplex uh, infections. So I, I'm totally prepared to believe that patients with Alzheimer's disease might be more likely to get HSV. Uh, or be diagnosed or, or with because be they, diagnosed they tend with to, be, to be diagnosed with because they tend to be unhealthier. Yeah. What I don't understand is why the treatment would reverse that. That that okay. So let me ask you a second. Requires a totally different set of sort of circumstances that would lead so to is a it, mis- is it possibly the opposite? Is it is there a possibility that that the dementia is is leading to the failure to treat herpes? Not not whether whether it's intentional because you're you're well, focused on the dementia and not on the herpes, or you're not reporting the you know whatever it is. Uh, that would lead you to it's those with dementia are getting a less less treatment. Let me respond to that because of two, two things. One is those three encounters with the healthcare system were um, a, a necessary prerequisite for the first year of enrollment in this study. They don't really comment about how many contacts there were from that point until for the next 10 years until um, they developed uh, dementia. So we don't know. There could be, have been very, very few of, of those. Yep. Those, those encounters. And the other thing is that they did the analysis by excluding all cases of de- dementia that developed in the first five years of follow-up. Mm-hmm. And I think that that would speak to what you're talking about, Matt. And, and that, that, I found that and just found difficult the same to, to understand in, in why they were doing that. But how do we explain then the, the, the start, the striking impact of anti-herpetic drugs? I cannot. That is so I cannot. interesting. And, and not only that, but the selection of drugs that use like gansiclovir. Who in the world is giving gansiclovir for herpes simplex out- outbreaks? Apparently, in I would Taiwan. like to know because I mean, that is a very dangerous drug, and okay. it's given uh, uh, IV. 
So like, yeah, it's usually given for a herpes simplex well, encephalitis. CMV, right? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a, a renal, renal toxic drug. It's very hard to understand how, how anybody is getting gancyclovir for HSV infections in the first place. And yet there it is. Okay. So, so the other thing that I find strange and hard to, hard to put together is they, they present a Kaplan-Meier curve of their main findings. So this is uh, a curve of the cumulative incidence of, of dementia uh, over time, separated out by whether or not you have HSV, uh, you don't have HSV, or you have HSV treated. Right. And there is, you know, very little dementia in over 10 years. So these are people over 50 year followed for over 50 followed for 10 years. Very flat. There's almost, it's, it's just a very small, low incidence of, of dementia over 10 years amongst those without. It peaks at below half a percent, or, sorry, 0.5. Right. Percent. Yep. Right. So well below. Practic- practically a flat line. Whereas the uh, group that is, and, and that is true for those without herpes, those with herpes and treated, almost identical, slightly different, but not much. But the big difference is in those with herpes untreated, and they peak at about 1.5% over 10 years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, what's weird about this to me is if you look at this curve, and you, you shouldn't read K- Kaplan-Meier curves this way, but but I'm going to anyway. Most of the increase mm-hmm. is in year one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why that is that? That feels yeah. like a diagnostic right. issue. Right. Right? You're yeah. getting into – as soon as you get your, your Indicare for your – uh, for your herpes, you're picking up the dementias. And, and that's why I was concerned about this diagnostic bias. And maybe patients who've got, who've got dementia and have herpes, the doctors are systematically less likely to bother to treat the herpes. Yeah. Now, it does continue to go up after that at a very, very flat rate. And so, so that's a suggest to me maybe there is really something going on, but it's going to be, you know, it's just vastly overinflated by what's going on in this first year that mm-hmm. may, and, may and, not be real. And they did exclude the first five years of dementia well, development so and, I, and still found an effect. It was less of an effect, but they still found an effect. But that's where I'm confused because there are obviously events going on over the first five years. I don't know. I didn't know what that first five years of exclusion meant. One other thing uh, that I would point to then, which is that if, so that's 1.5% roughly, right, right at the end of 10 years. But if you look at the, um, the, what they report as the proportion of the population that developed uh, dementia amongst, specifically amongst those with herpes, I, what I was reading, they said 5.8% of those with herpes treated and 28.3% of those with herpes not treated, developed dementia over 10 years. How do we get from 1.5% to 28%? No idea where so they got that from. You know, I don't know what's going on there, but something something just just, just didn't add up for me. Mm, literally. And so, I, yeah, I, I struggled with that. Yep. Any any last points anyone wants to make? Nope. Nope. Do I get the last word then, as you always? Do. Which is, there were a few of my pet peeves in this article. Oh, really? Uh, so let's start with the main finding, which is... Uh, the main finding was an increased, uh, was it a relative risk or hazard ratio? I didn't write down. might have been a hazard ratio of 2.564. Okay. <laughs> three, three levels of significance We there. do not need three decimal places. We don't even need two. I would be ha- perfectly happy with 2.6, it's the over-precision. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, my other real pet peeve is if you go to the tables, they've got uh, p-values galore including asterisks. the asterisks, which is for P less than 0.05, P less than 0.01, P less than 0.001. Even if you're going to be a problem high, with the asterisks even or the if P values? Both. I have a problem with the P what? values, but if you're going to... What's wrong with an asterisk? 
the asterisk implies that we can change the significance level at the time that we actually interpret the p-value. Oh, yeah. Which we can't do. All right. I'm not a hypothesis tester, but if I was going to be. So moving on, let's go to our second segment. So in our second segment, we want to talk about an article that, that was published in the journal Science Magazine by Jeffrey Brainerd and Gia Yu. Very recently, it was on October 25th of 2018. And the title of the article was What a Massive Database of Retracted Papers Reveals About Scientific Publishing's Quote, death penalty. Um, and this was an article that describes uh, Retraction Watch. So Retraction Watch is a website that you can go to that talks about papers that have been retracted. And the article was, was um, prompted by the fact that uh, Retraction Watch has just released a searchable database of all the retracted papers that they have become aware of. And so this gave the authors an opportunity to troll through this database to see what they could learn about retractions. So retractions are when a scientific paper is removed from the literature, a retraction uh, letter is issued by the journal, and the article is is removed from the scientific literature, right? Or, or it may not be removed, it may but not it's be flagged removed. as it is retracted. Flagged as a retracted paper, and typically the reasons for this uh, often relate to fraud, but but that isn't the only reason. They could be for uh, for mistakes uh, or for um, fraudulent behavior. I'll call it so uh, faked peer review and things like that. Um, Chris, what what? What is this article all about and what did they learn? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think the, the, the main takeaway from this is that they're, they're, they're found to their considerable dismay that fraud as a, as, a, um, as a fraction of all papers that have been retracted appears to have become the, the single largest category leading to ref, re, of retractions. And it has grown year after year after year. Uh, and so the, sort of the question is why... Why is that? And what is that telling us? Is this, is this because we are getting a better at finding it? Is it because it is happening more often? Is it both? What, what exactly is this? And what are the implications in terms of how does this spill over onto the public's perception of the validity of science and their belief in it? I think, I think they've, they've really highlighted a very important and worrisome issue here. Um, so let me, let me add some, some facts to that. So from, from what I gathered, um, their take is that retractions have have increased uh, about tenfold, or about a decade ago when they started this project. The, it, it, retractions have been increasing steadily, about tenfold. Uh, they do actually appear to be relatively rare. So about two in ten thousand papers are retracted. Um, and so this database is from the, the two guys who founded Retraction Watch, which are Ivan Aransky and Adam Marcus, both in uh, New York City. And so they have this searchable database of over 18,000 retracted papers and conference abstracts going back to the 1970s. They do claim there's a paper in there going back further. Uh, they claim there's a paper that's been retracted by Ben Franklin, but I, I, I searched <laughs> it. I couldn't find it. Something to do with lightning and keys and, keys and, yeah, and kites. Yeah. Uh, And so they say that although the number of annual retractions has grown over time, the rate has increased and uh, sorry, the rate of increase has slowed down Uh, about 2% contain uh, 2% of those that were retracted were retracted because they contained problematic images that experts identified as intentionally manipulated, which I thought was a. Quite an interesting. I mean, images. I'm I'm assuming that is a, a scientific image as opposed to a figure or a table or something like that, uh, which is not something I deal with. So mm. I'm not sure what how 
you know, it's like a, a photograph of a cell or something right, like that, right, and, and right. you doctor it or you manipulate it in some way. Right. You put put the fluorescent spots in different places that you would hope that you're going to find an effect. Yep. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Using Photoshop or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. or, or some kind of manipulation technique. Um, so another interesting, most of the 12,000 journals that are listed in the uh, web of science have reported no retractions since 2003. So t- that's a lot of journals that have never... Well, not never, but since 2003, have not retracted anything for a any. single yeah. paper. I wonder whether that's in part because of the the uh, huge expansion of journals, a su- substantial number of which are of lesser quality. Yeah. And we would expect that they would be less diligent about retractions, and therefore they're they're sort of that. That's why it's kind of leveling off. Or, or they they may be less diligent, or those may be lower. Uh, tier journals that people are paying less attention to, and therefore there are fewer people with eyeballs on these things to pick up Calling the fraud. The bluff, yeah. So it could be it could be either. Mm-hmm. A couple other things I found interesting. So uh, 500 of the over 30,000 authors in this database, and remember that the the fraud could have been committed by one person, but co-authors then right. get implicated, so they end up in the database. So it's you know uh, so be five, careful. Who 500 you of team the up with. of the 30,000 authors account for a quarter. Of of the well, this is ten thousand odd retractions, but a, a quarter of retractions. So so in other words, there's a lot of pe- there are people, sure. a few people who are committing having a lot of papers retracted, um, including and, our, our friend Yoshitaka Fuji, which which we talked about on a on a previous podcast. You know, I wonder whether that's because somebody somebody is found um, to be um, is accused and found to be guilty of fraud. And they then yes. go back into the literature and they pull all of their, their other papers and look at them, scrutinize them, and sure. then pull those. Because yep. so it's really a one-off. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, there's, there's sort of a grouping effect. Yep. Pretending to do science is a heck of a lot easier than actually doing it. Oh, yeah. Much easier. And so then if you go back to 1997 and you plot out, they plotted out the I loved this reason figure, for attractions from 1997 to 2018. And, you know, almost uh, much uh, about 30%, 40% of the retractions, the two main reasons were plagiarism or duplication of text and uh, flawed images. Those are sort of the main reasons. Until 2009, when there starts to be an increase in fake peer reviews, Mm. such that in 2014, which seems to be the last, or 2015, last sort of reliable years of this database, it's about 20% of all retractions are for faked peer review. And and to clarify, this this is like when you go into the journal website and you're submitting a paper and they ask you if you'd like to, 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 you know, suggest a reviewer, that you put in an email address that you own that you sort of set up as a, a shadow account without your name on it to make it obvious. And then you review your own paper favorably. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, but it's, it's like a novelty. It's funny that it came out of nowhere in 2009 peaked and is now well, sort of starting to drop off. So I'm suspecting that either, you know, obviously one, one explanation is it started then, but more, I suppose a more likely explanation is that's when people caught on to this mm-hmm. and started looking for it. Mm-hmm. And so it was before 2009. It was, so it was something on people's radar screens. I also wondered whether this was a, a, a possibly a reflection of the increased standardization of the software that we use to submit papers online. Yep. And that maybe this Plagiarism is an artifact sure. of the fact that, you know, so many of these web, of these journals use exactly the same tool and that many of them have that that question embedded in them to invite an author uh, you know and invite oh, I see what to you're name saying. your peer reviewer and so if that didn't exist before that would be a, a form of plagiarism that would that that could only occur because of a technological 
um, change in the way papers are, are processed. Yep. So what I wanted to ask you guys was this. So uh, I, I think we would all agree that uh, fraud or, or scientific misconduct is a reason to retract a paper. And I think we probably also put in that in the fraud and scientific is, is faked peer review. The question is, uh, when is a retraction required for something that turns out not to be true? In other you words, mean, it's just wrong. Well, wrong. I mean, so or, we, or were, we were we were talking in the earlier segment. You you talked about these observational studies of chlamydia uh, that were implicated in coronary artery disease, I believe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That we then did randomized trials, and there was no effect. Should those papers? That were done on the observational the observational studies now be retracted. No, that's what no, I'm trying to. No, 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 no. That's a different thing. I think when we were saying wrong, we mean that like somehow the methodology was flawed. was wrong. Like you know, you you used the wrong. You know, you did a study where you're you know you're running viruses, growing viruses in in HeLa cells or or you know Vero cells, and it turned out that your cell line was contaminated with HeLa cells, and so you weren't actually measuring the thing that you were you thought you were measuring, and so it's wrong because it's technically wrong, and so you just generated bogus data, and all the claims you made about its growth in Vero cells are wrong because it was actually HeLa cells, but not fraudulent per but se, because the intent the intent wasn't there, yeah, just yeah. a mistake, sloppy. Or people who round off pi to three oh. and use that in their calculations. <laughs> or, Wrong. Or, <laughs> you know? Okay. Um, and, I, and I fully agree with you there. But I'm not sure that if you ask the average person on the street about this, whether their opinion would be the same, which is to say that we have a, a body of evidence about something that actually turned out to be wrong. Isn't that – shouldn't that be – you know, that's been disproven. Shouldn't it be removed from the literature? Shouldn't that be retracted? Well, I think you have to – have- Oh, good. I have to make a distinction, I think, between wrong and not showing the truth. You know, because I think that there are a lot of studies that are done that don't find the truth, but that's not because they're wrong. It's because the the approach to finding the truth was not successful, was not sufficient to be able to do that. So to imply that it is wrong, to me, implies that it was it was done incorrectly or it was done methodologically poorly, as opposed to that experiment was insufficient to answer the question that 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 you're that you're seeking because it didn't lead you there. Although you learned that that's the pathway that you can't take to get to that particular outcome, and you got to rethink it. So let me go back to Chris's example. Essentially, what you're saying, Chris, is that we were not measuring the thing that we thought we were measuring, and therefore we retract it because we realized after the fact that we were not measuring right. the thing. We we're, do this all the time, though. We mismeasure things all the time in research, and that could be the explanation for why you know the chlamydia example didn't pan out. Why is it that we retract it when we figure out the problem, but as long as we don't know about it, we leave it? And I'm not, I, by the way, I'm not arguing. I'm playing devil's advocate here, but I just want to try to understand where is the line at which we say, again, fraud, we're all clear on. Mm-hmm. But where's the line between uh, the science turned out to be wrong for reasons that are acceptable and science turned out for wrong for reasons that we don't consider acceptable. Well, let, let, let's consider the, the the classic confounding example that we use in Epi 101, which is like coffee is associated with cancer. Coffee consumption is associated with lung cancer. And so, you know, very quickly, the students realize that coffee drinkers tend to smoke and smoking is causing lung cancer, and therefore it's confounding. And so if, if we had published a paper that said coffee is associated with cancer and we had not controlled in our model for smoking, would that, in your opinion, be an example where we just got it wrong because, you know, 
we were early in the discovery of this phenomenon. We were trying to understand. And later on, we realized that it's really all about the smoking. And so then we learned. And so that would be reflected in a series of papers that were wrong because we didn't understand the true biology and the true associations. As opposed to if you went into, um, you you know, you, you knew that smoking was an important confounder and you willfully omitted it from your model. Yep. That one would seem to me to cross the line into a paper that should be retracted because there you're kind of like fudging the data. It's a little bit like like forcing your conclusion by deliberately manipulating your model in a way that makes it appear that your hypothesis is correct. See to me your former example is 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 kind of is is kind of indicative of the march of science. You know, you your hypothe- your, your your hypothetical was presumably occurring at a time before we knew if there ever was a time about confounding. And in the same way, there are new methodologies, there are new detectors, there yeah. are new tests mm-hmm. that come along all the time that enlighten us. And, and that's, that's how science works. And we build on the shoulders of our, our past accomplishments or our past failures to find a new way forward. So to me, you know, we shouldn't go back and retract all of those papers in the pre-knowledge of confounding era because they were wrong. Um, because you know that that stands as kind of the signposts of how we got to where we are in the advance of medical of, of science. Yeah, and I take your point, but 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 go back to the, the the example that I gave before of the of the the chlamydia case, where if if it if it it turns out that um, you know we were well, so we're doing a study and we realized that we were not measuring the thing that we were intending to measure. Then you're saying we retract the study. That was your first example, not the chlamydia one, but that was right. Your, so you used yeah, yeah. you reported using Vero cells, yep. but it, by mistake you're using HeLa cells, and so yep. the, the the experiment you did was was flawed. Right. We realized flawed. we were not measuring what we thought we were measuring. Right. Whereas in the you know in another study, we are not measuring it well because we don't have a good instrument. You know, we just use self-report, so we know we're not doing a great job of measuring it. Uh, that's okay, but. If we knowing full well that we're not going to measure it well, that's okay. Whereas the case where we thought we were measuring it and then we turned out we weren't, that is a problem. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm struggling with, and I, I I don't I actually come down in the same place with you. I just don't know why. Well, here's a here's a hypothesis. So if we're looking at the you know this graph here, which shows the the sort of big coning out of of papers that have been uh, re- retracted over time, and we see that more every you know every year since 2000 or 1997, the number of papers that get retracted has gone up and up and up and up. It's still mm-hmm. a small number, but it's it's going up. But the proportion of retractions that are due to fraud is it seems to have been expanding disproportionate to the total number of retractions. So it's fraud is an ever increasing fraction of the retracted papers, maybe maybe stabilizing around 2015. Yep. But the thing that distinguishes fraud from the other causes is that fraud is always wrong. Fraud is always a reason to retract the paper. Yep. Whereas the other ones, those are totally ambiguous. Mm. Um, okay. And it would really require an egregious mistake, like I used the wrong cell line, yeah. to say that that study is completely invalid. We should just retract it because it's misleading. So can I can I just read this to you? So, so there is actually, I went and looked this up, pointed to it by the article, the Committee on Publication Ethics has retraction guidelines for journals. And I, they have several categories. They sh- when journal editors should consider retracting, when they should consider isu- issuing uh, an expression of concern, so on and so forth, a correction and so on. For Just going for when journal editors should consider retracting a publication, they should consider retracting a publication if they have clear evidence that the findings are unreliable, 
either as a result of misconduct, so data fabrication, or honest error, miscalculation or experimental error are two examples. The findings have previously been published elsewhere. Yes, I would agree. It constitutes plagiarism. Yep. It reports unethical research. Sure. That first one, though, sounds to mm-hmm. me a bit like we're talking about we were wrong mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as opposed to just we, we, we made some obvious mistake that we didn't realize at the time was a mistake. Right. You, What's the difference between my limitation section and the point at which something should be retracted? And I, I just I, I'm, I'm asking as an honest question. I really don't know where the line is. I think that's why that as a category of all papers that have retracted is such a small proportion yeah. is because it is very difficult to make that call unless it is obvious. Like there was some critical you know, equation that you put into your model and you flipped the, you know, a positive to a negative by mistake in the equation. And so everything is now literally backwards. There you go. That's a mistake. You know, let's retract that one. Sure. Oops. Or you could offer a correction and say, we corrected it. And, and like, by the way, it turns out it's, and that's also the opposite. Now you got two papers (laughs) out of one. It's great actually. But that's also done. That's also done. You know, the corrections are done. Corrections are done. And, and, and now with, you know, with electronic search services, um, we can populate those those journals and those articles with corrections in yep. a much more effective way than we used to be able to do. And they, they say a, a, a correction should be done if a small proportion, small portion of an otherwise reliable publication proves to be misleading, mm-hmm. especially because of honest error or the author or contributor list is incorrect. So, yeah. All right, should we uh, should we move on to our, our last segment here, mm-hmm. which is our Amazing Amusing, which is where we highlight some of the weird, wacky things that go on, the things that make our job even more interesting than it already is. Uh, can I uh, can I go first this time? Please, because mine is really short, and it just it just amused me. So um, remember, you were uh, saying that uh, when you first heard about the uh, Alzheimer. Uh, sorry, dementia and and HSV. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a word that you considered. Uh, I believe it was uh, the word we're not allowed to say, which is BS. Do you remember uh, when uh, once upon a time for the amazing amusing, I re- I gave you a syllabus uh, for a course on 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 calling BS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, this? it was great, great. Sounded like a great course. So this, uh, so the authors uh, of that course, the the creators of that course, uh, had a, a tweet in which they they tweeted out their uh, formula, the the equation for BS. Did you know there is an equation <laughs> for which you can uh, calculate the amount of BS? Does no. it involve pi? No, pi is not in it. So the formula for BS is equal to m plus q to the n divided by u times s plus the arctan of t. Okay. Now I'll tell you what each one of those things is. So obviously B is BS. Uh, M is the the mathiness. <laughs> N is the number of variables. Mathiness. <laughs> N is the number of variables. T, uh, sorry, U is the utility. Q is the unquantifiability. Uh, T is, this is just getting silly now. And S is the ability to keep a straight face. So there you go. There is the... Undeniable formula. God, I love quantitative analysis. BS. That is very helpful Excellent. to know. Excellent. Chris, what do you got for us? Well, I, I, was, I found this uh, interesting paper about the ethology of uh, interactions, human-human interactions in the operating room at several hospitals. This was, uh, again, in PNAS, and I can pull the literature, uh, the, the citation if you want. But for those of you who don't know, ethology is the science of studying interactions between humans or other animals. Um, there was an Ig Nobel Award for that. Wait, in the operating room, did you say? Yes, in Humans? surgical suites. 
What now? Right. So ethology is not limited to animals. You can study the ethology of human-human interactions. Oh, I see. Right? Okay. So it's just the, the, the study of, in, of how or organisms interact, and they can be the same species or different species. Got so it would be like, you know, how do, how do, you know, chickens establish a pecking order in, um, right. Uh, how do <laughs> people, how do chickens establish a pecking order? Like, you know, there's that kind of thing. So. Wait, in, how do they? Um, so, they peck each other. Okay, the biggest, good. The bigger chickens peck the little chickens and, and, and then pretty soon that's. And you know this, Because <laughs> I. Used to own chickens until I free ranged them and they got eaten. Okay, the chickens are gone. Don, oh no, really? Yeah, they, got, they got old. They got old. It was it was their time. So anyway, so what got them? Um, I don't know. Probably a coyote or a fisher or a fox. You know. Yeah, we do that. So Don and I both went through this when we were medical students. That that surgeons have this sort of history of yelling at people in the operating room and like everything kind of rolls downhill. And like, the, if you're the lowest person in the totem pole, you tend to get yelled at a lot. And so they wanted to sort of study this empirically. And so they, they did, they did this kind of cool experiment where they had people observing what was going on in operating rooms. And they did several hundred surgeries and they looked at who did who said what to whom? And they kind of categorized them until whether they were, these were cooperative statements, meaning that there was like kind of a nice thing, like like some mentoring from the, the, the surgeon to the fellow, for example, or whether these were sort of, these were conflict-laden uh, statements, um, which would be, um, you know, someone being snarky or mean or sarcastic or or angry at someone else in the operating room. And they sort of characterized all these relationships. And what they found, not surprisingly, was that there was a tremendous gender effect of um, conflict in operating rooms. That, um, and, but but the, the way that this played out was sort of surprising, that the more uh, homogeneous the operating room members were, which would be go from the, you know, the senior attending surgeon down to the, the surgical fellow, down to the surgical resident, down to the scrub nurse, um, who would be the next on the totem pole, and down to the charge nurse. Oh, and the anesthesiologist would be a little bit high up. So the be surgeon to surgical fellow to surgical resident to anesthesiologist to scrub nurse to to the circulating nurse, which is the person who goes in and out of the operating room and is not scrubbed in. And then the medical student. And then the medical student at the bottom, but they didn't include medical students uh -huh. in this analysis. And so what they found was that the, the more that the gender of the group was homogeneous, the more conflict there was. Oh. So Homogene all, okay. homogeneous. So the more like if it was all female teams, there was more conflict. If there were all male teams, there was more conflict. But if you mixed it up. But if you mixed it up, there was much less conflict. Interesting. So a mixture of male and female seemed to have an ameliorating effect. And and that has been seen in, in other ethology research as well, not just in humans, but in, in other uh, animal species. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But interestingly, the um the the effect of increasing conflict due to homogeneity of gender was particularly pronounced if it was all male teams, where there was much more conflict than in any other Oh, that's domains. not surprising. Okay. Right. And then the other thing that was sort of interesting and maybe not surprising is that the, the, the victim of the conflict comments, like the nasty remarks, yep. was usually several steps away from the person initiating the comment. So it was so it wasn't less, a direct it was statement. less the fellow it was less the attending surgeon yelling at the fellow, but much more the attending surgeon yelling at the scrub nurse or at the charge or at the, the circulating nurse. And so it was people who were from many steps away on the hierarchy oh, from the surgeon or the, whoever's initiating it. who seemed to be the victims. And so there was a, a tremendous asymmetry on who got huh. yelled at. 
and that the conflict almost always went down the hierarchy rather than up the hierarchy. That, well, that part doesn't surprise it's, me. It's not surprising. Yeah. And do you want to guess on which surgical specialties were, were most egregious in terms of having high levels of conflict? Cardiothoracic surgery. Cardiothoracic, <laughs> number really? one. I didn't know that. Followed well, by... Wait, how did you know that? Neurosurgery. Followed by... Orthopedic surgery. Orthopedic surgery was on the list, but vascular surgery was slightly edged them out. And the least conflict was... Dermatology. No, surgical specialty? Surgical specialty. Urology. They were very low, but there's one even lower. OBGYN? Yeah, least conflict of all was... Wait, how did you know that? How did you know the highest ones? I don't have a rational reason for knowing that, but it's just the sum total of my experience having gone through the system... Absolutely, that would have been those wow. would have been the first two that I would have chosen. Fascinating. Yeah. They, yeah. they tend to be cowboys. They tend to be very dominant, domineering, the very guys. sure of themselves. Yeah, okay. and the vascular guys. Yeah. 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 Wow, interesting. Interesting. Okay, Don, you want to take the last place? Yeah, I've got um, uh, I've got a, uh, a publication from Healthcare Dive um, by Katie Bo Williams. Healthcare Dive. I don't know what this thing is from. Okay. Journal. But what it what it's reporting on are the 16 most absurd ICD-10 codes. <laughs> okay. Because they just changed the system from ICD-9 to ICD-10 and for ICD-9 codes. These are the codes that you categorize yep. a, a medical condition into. Uh, the ICD-9 codes were 13,000. And then in 2015, they increased it for billing purposes to 68,000 ICD-10 codes. That's a lot of codes. So I'm just going to read through these as uh, as codes that they have designated. So one is sucked into a jet engine, <laughs> subsequent encounter. Subsequent. This is you a, mean people survive that? No, apparently it has to do with the fact that you have seen the second doctor after you've been sucked into a jet engine. You might have to see a lot of doctors to get that one fixed. <laughs> Accidental striking against or bumped into by another person. Oh, yeah. Sequelae. <laughs> <laughs> Pedestrian on foot, injured in collision with roller skater. Subsequent encounter. <laughs> That's a common one, though, depending on where you live. Activities involved in arts and crafts. Yeah. Yeah, you know, oh, These sure. are injuries that happen at camp. Hot like glue gun. Eating, Hot eating oh, the pigs. <laughs> camp is gun. a dangerous thing. Yep. Dependence on enabling machines and devices not elsewhere classified. As in my phone? As in a Crackberry. Really? Yeah. So is this, does this include people who, like, fall down manholes while texting? Exactly. All right. Cool. Wow. Swimming pool of prison as the place of occurrence of Swimming the external cause. Swimming pool of prison. That is a remarkably precise. I know. Other superficial bite of other specified part of neck. Initial <laughs> encounter. <laughs> I think that that sounds like a hickey to me. It does. <laughs> Bitten huh. by pig. <laughs> That's in there? Yeah. Yeah, these are all absolutely Did... in there. Struck by duck. Subsequent <laughs> Problems in relationship <laughs> with <laughs> in-laws. With the doctor flying? Who doesn't have problems with the relationship with in-laws? That's a diagnosis. An ICD-10 What's the treatment code? For uh, what is the treatment for that? I don't know. It's all ducked up. Oh. Walked into lamppost, subsequent encounter. <laughs> no. <laughs> Wouldn't you think that if you did that once, you're... You would learn? Well, maybe it's like right in your, you know, outside your front door. Every day you've got, yeah. you're, you're looking at your phone, you walk into the lamppost. Yeah, you're drinking your beer. Burn due to water skis on fire. 
Water ski. How can you? How can your water skis catch on fire? Because you're jumping through those those flaming hoops. Oh, like Fonzie did. That's how it happens. Jumping the shark. When Fonzie jumped the shark. Right. Right. There's only four more. Other contact with cow. Subsequent encounter. Yeah. As distinct from contact bitten by cow. Yep. Kicked by cow. Yeah. This is whatever's left over. The unmentionables with cow. I guess. Uh-huh. How wow. about this? Spacecraft collision injuring occupant. That uh, happens Sequelae. way more than you'd think. Uh, struck by macaw. <laughs> <laughs> Initial encounter. Do, how, many, how many birds are there listed specifically? <laughs> Ducks? No, I don't know. Geese? And then the last, one, last one's my favorite one, which is bizarre personal appearance. <laughs> <laughs> Any any indication of, of how often these were used? Well, they've only been in existence since, you know, for the last, what, uh, three years. Oh, I would love to know. I would, oh, lo- that's I would like to know the number of people who have other encounter with cow. Yeah. Other. <laughs> and, admit to and that. What is that? Right. It probably results from tipping cows. Yeah. You know about tipping cows. All yeah, right. you should not do that. Yeah. Well, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback or this Thankfully. or any other episode... <laughs> Or you want to suggest a topic or a study for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at BrothMadFox, or you can tweet Chris at, at ID.Gill or Don at, at DTheo1, or but you can I, find us. I won't reply. No, he won't. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you'll download our next episode.